Okay, after quite a long hiatus, we're returned to Acts. Acts, and we're in chapter 9, if you recall. 32 through the end of the chapter, verse 43. Uh, two great miracles today. Uh, so let's, let's pray and then we'll go to the Word. Father, will you grow us in faith and holiness that we might live as disciples in joyful service of our Master. In His name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the Word. I'm reminded of Paul's exhortation to Timothy to read the Word publicly. It's a reminder that this is the good part of the sermon. Anything else is just an attempt at explanation and application. This is where we get our richness and our feeding from the very Word of God. So hear now the Word of God. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come with us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and rose and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And, became, and it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. Amen. This is God's word. Please be seated. If you remember kind of the flow of Acts, these stories about these miracles of Peter seem a little bit misplaced. Why did Luke put them here instead of with previous miracles of Peter? He's been focusing on Paul. Doesn't Luke know Acts chapter 9 is about Paul's conversion? Why did he stick these two miracles in here? And as we return to Acts after a little bit of time here, it's good to be reminded about the structure and the purpose of this book. If you remember, uh, rather than the popular titles of Acts of the Apostles or Acts of the Holy Spirit, which are worthy titles, I had proposed a less elegant but perhaps more precise title for the book, which is the ongoing Acts of the Heavenly Ministry of Jesus Christ on Earth. These are Jesus' Christ acts as he sits and reigns in heaven. 
So Acts is the story of King Jesus spreading his kingdom across the earth through the Great Commission, like, like a ripple in a pond, beginning in Jerusalem and Judea and spreading to Samaria and out to the ends of the earth. But that's the story of Acts. And these miraculous stories show the effects of the apostolic gospel as it spreads here in this case across the plain of Sharon, out away from Jerusalem. And it sets up the next major act in the drama, which is the bringing of the gospel to the Gentiles with Cornelius in chapter 10. Uh, but these stories are not just a uh, mere historical record. They're given to us that we might also grow in faith and holiness. That we observe what King Jesus did all those years ago as he laid the foundation on which we base the structure of our own very lives. So the first thing that we learn about the ongoing acts of the heavenly ministry of Jesus in these stories is that Jesus confirms our faith through biblical miracles. Jesus confirms our faith through his miracles in the Bible. We see this in the way that people responded to these miracles and also by understanding the purpose of miracles in the Bible as a whole. So let's look at this healing of Aeneas first and how it unfolds. Peter is kind of on visitation to churches around the cities of Jerusalem. It says he was going here and there among them all. And on the process of, of this visitation, he came to the saints at Lydda, the city of Lydda, which is on the plain of Sharon. So if you go down from Jerusalem down toward the Mediterranean, about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem, about a day's journey by foot. If you, if you lived back then, that's about three days' journey for me. Uh, so it's about 11 miles from the coast of um, Mediterranean and from Joppa. Now these saints um, were there in Lydda already before Peter got there. And if you remember back, uh, the evangelist Philip, after his time in Samaria, and then he, he met with the Ethiopian eunuch on the chariot, and then he, the Lord brought him to Azotus, and then he went up the coast to Caesarea. So it seems perhaps that Philip evangelized this territory beforehand. So there were already saints there, and Peter was visiting them. And then he meets this man, Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, uh, paralyzed and it's unusual. There was a lot of speculation about why. <laughs> we have no idea why he was paralyzed or how it may have stroke or something. Uh, but I'm reminded of our friend from, is actually my seminary president's son-in-law who came to seminary while I lived there. His name is Michael Garreau, and he was really fit and able. To, like, he would go and climb these mountain peaks in the winter by himself and then ski down. Like just a, an amazing physical capacity. And then uh, one day, Michael fell sick, and he was in the hospital for many days with Guillain-Barre syndrome. And now he's in a wheelchair. He, he can't walk. He can't stand. He's thin. Um, I think of him when I think of this man. This is how he's going to be the rest of his life, presumably. Now, very much like the miracles of Christ, we have this miracle of Peter that just sounds so much like some of the miracles of Christ. Rise and make your bed. And, and he did. He stood up and he walked. And he did it in the name of Jesus. He didn't say, I heal you. Peter heals you. The great apostle heals you. He said, Jesus Christ 
heals you. Then he says that the city of Lydda and the whole of Sharon, Sharon here is not a city, it's a plain wherein uh, Lydda sits. So this whole region heard and saw this man and it says they turned to the Lord. And this is kind of Lucan hyperbole. Not every single person turned to the Lord, of course, but they turned to the Lord. And I like that simple way of speaking about conversion. It's efficient and elegant in that it speaks of both faith and repentance. As you turn toward the Lord, you turn away from sin. They saw this miracle and they saw not the greatness of Peter, but the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. A couple of questions come to mind in applying this stories, uh, this story and, and other similar stories is how do these miracles and these stories impact our own faith? I mean, are we to expect these kind of things to happen today? Is that the application? Should we seek to engage in evangelism by miracle? Because it was pretty effective here. And doesn't it make you wonder, if Peter could heal like this in the name of Jesus, why not do the same for Paul's thorn in the flesh? Why not Jesus do that now for my friend Michael? Why not do that now for my friend Michael or, or Kelly or any one of us? Why are we not healed immediately in this way all the time? Especially when considering the reaction of the people, how effective it was. This would bring glory to God. This would bring glory to the va- to God in the valley. People would see and turn to the Lord. That gets us to the heart of what a miracle really is. Uh, we kind of call everything a miracle. A baby's born. That's a miracle. Uh, no one's hurt in a bad car accident. That's a miracle. Uh, perhaps we get somewhere on time with four kids. That's a miracle. Miracles actually have a very strict definition and purpose, and we have to be careful to distinguish here between God's ongoing supernatural activity on the one hand and miracles on the other hand. So the strict definition of a miracle is, and I steal this from R.C. Sproul, an extraordinary work performed by the immediate power of God in the external perceivable world, which is an act against nature, that only God can do. So a few examples. A floating axe head is against nature. It, it just doesn't happen. A resurrection from the dead. Uh, water into wine. Regeneration of a human being. Those are miracles. Now the devil, he can do supernatural feats. He can perform masterful illusions, such as the Egyptian magicians but he cannot do miracles in the strict sense of the word. So that is what a miracle is in the strict definition. The purpose of a miracle is illustrated in Hebrews 2, 3 through 4. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. Well, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So that's the purpose of a miracle. 
bearing witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. The purpose of a miracle is to bear witness to the credibility of the messengers of God, his agents of special revelation, which begins to explain why God doesn't just miraculously and publicly heal every single one of us. Why he doesn't engage by evangel- in evangelism by miracle today. It's because that was never the point of miracles. The point of miracles was to establish the credibility of the apostolic witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was to establish the credibility of the gospel. So the miracles of Peter and the other apostles were for the laying of the foundation of the church. The foundation has been laid. There are no further apostles, no further need for miracles in the strict sense of the word, because the canon of scripture is complete. So we therefore conclude there aren't any miracles in the strict sense of the word, which is why we view claims of miracles as specious. Uh, If they are claiming miracles in the strict sense, then we need to take up our pens, because whatever they say is scripture is special revelation. So, that's on the one hand, but on the other hand, please don't take me to to mean that God has stopped working supernaturally. He does, and, and we can and should pray for healing. And whether immediate and supernatural or through ordinary means, God heals, and ultimately, God is the healer. And we should pray that He would work supernaturally. And I would even add that maybe, I don't know what R. Steve would say about this, since I stole his definition, but maybe there is one miracle that happens every day, um, and I think it meets the strict definition of a miracle, and that is regeneration. A person being born again. It is supernatural resurrection from the dead that testifies to God's special revelation, specifically His Word, because the Gospel is the power of God to salvation. So, to me, all that explanation about what a miracle is and isn't helps me make sense of this passage. Um, It's comforting and it stimulates our faith to have an appropriate understanding of miracles. Um, It's comforting because it's easy to become exasperated because... Either God's not answering my prayers or He's not showing Himself to me. Where is God? If we're expecting miracles all the time, that's exasperating. So the takeaway here is meant to be, look look at the testimony about Jesus. It's true. The Gospel is true. The things the apostles preached were true. The apostolic witness, the apostolic doctrine is from God. We have the faith once for all delivered and it's valid. Look at these miracles recorded for us. They validate their message. So I I hope you're encouraged by that truth as I am because we're so drawn to the extraordinary. We, We forget the power of the plain preaching of the apostolic gospel, which again is the power of God for salvation. We don't have to have some powerful demonstration of God's miraculous power to have faith. Because, for one thing, we have it in Scripture. We don't have to have a mystical encounter with a personal, private, special revelation 
to know the power of the gospel message in our lives. That the faith once for all delivered is enough. So that's the first point there, is that biblical miracles obviously gave faith to those there, but they increase our faith also. The miracles that we read in the Bible. Even as Jesus worked them in Peter for, for the people of Lydda and Joppa and the plain of Sharon, he did them for us so that we could believe. The next thing we see is that Jesus here is displaying his kingship through these miracles. Um, so these miracles not only increase our faith in the gospel and the apostolic doctrine, they increase our confidence in the hope of future glory. Because in these miracles, Jesus puts on display his kingly reign over the earth and over the course of history and redemptive history. So here's what's going on in the second miracle. After he's in Lydda, God brought Peter to Joppa through these events. Uh, Joppa is about 11 miles away, or roughly about a four-hour journey. Um, there's a modern-day city, Tel Aviv, and a suburb of that is Jaffa, Joppa. Um, so that's where that is. And they meet this woman, or we hear of this woman, Tabitha. She's also called Dorcas. I think one of those is a little prettier name than the other. Uh, it is a pretty name. It means gazelle, uh, and Tabitha is the Aramaic version and Dorcas is the Greek. Um, so I'll stick with Tabitha. You're naming daughters in the future. Not telling you what to do. He says he was, she was full of good works and charity. And if the widows here in this passage are any indication, it was she was taking care of the needs of needy people, of, of widows. She became ill and died, and, and they undertook the Jewish custom of washing her body. And they did something a little unusual. They put her in an upper room. Um, it's customary in Jewish tradition <laughs> to bury people before the sun goes down. So it's odd that they put her in the upper room. And we don't know quite why, as if they were expecting... Um, that Peter would come and raise her from the dead. There there were various views on that, but they put her in the upper room. And the disciples, uh, of course, had heard word of of Peter because of the miracle that had just taken place in Lydda. And so they send men to Lydda to plead with Peter, come to Joppa, come quickly to Joppa. And when he arrived, there were weeping widows around him, showing him all the garments that, that uh, Tabitha had made. And he, he removed them from the room. He, he knelt down and prayed. And he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes and saw Peter. She sat up and he took her out and presented her as a public miracle once again. And that's another point we need to, to realize is that these miracles are public. They're not dark back alley <laughs> miracles that you hear about today. These are public for the purpose, again, of displaying and affirming the gospel. And, and once again, this, there were a, a great deal of fruit born from this miracle. In verse 42, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Um, so this miracle is even more astounding than the last, and it reminds us again of Jesus himself and also of the great miracles that God did through Elijah, and especially Elisha. 
I like to imagine this story from the position of the men who went and got Peter. Like they ran down their four-hour journey. Maybe they ran and made it less and back. 22 miles round trip. If I did that, I'd be wiped out. But imagine you, you come and you see someone raised from the dead. No matter how tired you are, you would not sleep at all that night. This is an amazing miracle. As word spread around the city, once again, the effect was conversion on a large scale. We see the Great Commission being fulfilled. What's amazing about these two miracles, and this fits so well within the larger theme of Acts and the kingship of the Lord Jesus as he spreads his heavenly kingdom across the earth, is that they demonstrate his absolute sovereignty over the earth and over the course of history. And here's what I mean is that if we, if we take a step back and look at the larger picture, where does paralysis come from? Ultimately, from sin. Where does death come from? Ultimately, from sin. And here we see sin and death and disease do not have the final say. They're not more powerful than Jesus. These two miracles are what C.S. Lewis called miracles of reversal. And Lewis draws this distinction between miracles of the old creation and of the new creation. And this is kind of an interesting way to think about it. And a miracle of the old creation might have been turning water into wine, where this is the process that happens naturally in nature. Uh, rain falls, the vines take up water, there's grapes formed, the yeast lands on the grapes, they crush them and let it ferment, and that's a natural process. When Jesus turned water into wine, he essentially sped up the process. He skipped some steps. It's a miracle of the old creation. These miracles that we are looking at today are miracles of the new creation. Because properly speaking, victory over disease, victory over death, are for the new creation, are for the new heavens and the new earth. As we saw last week, um, so the new creation hasn't arrived in its fullness. We wait for the coming of Jesus and the final defeat of sin and death and disease. But we can plainly see here in these miracles that Jesus is in control of the new creation process. He's king over the new creation. In these miracles, he gives us just a glimpse of the glory that's to come. Disease and death defeated even momentarily. So I find it a strange objection to Christianity. Um, There's so much evil and brokenness in the world. And God's doing nothing about it. I can't be a Christian. I mean, really? Have you heard about Christianity at all? Have you read the word Christian? Christ? God's doing nothing about it at all? God becoming man to save sinners is doing nothing about it at all? It's just an odd objection to me. The Christian claim is that God went to such great lengths to do something about it. So these miracles are a compelling display of God's absolute power and sovereignty. Christ's absolute power and sovereignty. Death and disease and the thorns in the ground, the effects of the curse, do not have the last say. The real issue for those who reject Christianity is not that God isn't fixing it. It's that God isn't fixing it on their time scale. Not doing it the way I want, as fast as I want. The amazing thing about God's plan which is so much more 
interesting, but also God glorifying, said if we, he were to just wave a magic wand, it, it's more it, God glorifying in that, as Martin Luther wrote in the song we just sang, his truth to triumph through us. You notice that? Not just his truth to triumph, his truth, truth to triumph through us. He's working through us. We are involved by his grace. So you notice throughout this passage, Luke uses either the words saints or disciples a number of times for the followers of Christ. He calls Tabitha a disciple. And that's the final point I want to draw our attention to is that as we are compelled by Luke's testimony to put our faith in Christ through these miracles, uh, Jesus transforms and conforms us. He, he transforms us into his image and into saints and disciples. So this is just a narrative picture of the same truth that James presents didactically in his epistle, that fruit is an inevitable byproduct of faith. Verse 36, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, She was full of good works and acts of charity. Uh, For some reason, I always thought this kind of report about the weeping widows and showing the clothes is kind of showing your potholders that are so beautiful. Look at look what she made. They're so pretty. I don't know why I thought that. It's obvious they were there because Tabitha was taking care of these widows. it says that she made for them tunics, which is the garment that glows closest to the skin. So it's not like pretty stuff. It's stuff they needed. She was taking care of these women who needed it. And in that time and place, there was no welfare of sorts. Women in particular depended on their husbands. If they were widowed and had no other family to support them, they were left at the mercy of anyone who would help. And this was Tabitha. So it says in 29, all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Uh, And this, to me, is kind of a beautiful epitaph. Who wouldn't want this said about them at their funeral? A disciple full of good works and acts of charity. She was a disciple full of good works and acts of charity. We've talked about this before, but most funerals I attend, I'm very frustrated because the focus is always primarily on the person and rarely at all on Christ. Obviously, we want to focus on both, but primarily on Christ. On the other hand, we can swing the pendulum too far. And I think maybe even as full-blooded Calvinists, we can lose sight of the power of the testimony of the fruit of the gospel in a person's life. Well, he was a miserable wretch, but at least Christ saved him. Right? Well, true, theologically speaking. But did Christ's saving work have no impact on his life or on the lives of the lives of those around him? And it's not a bad question to keep in the back of our minds as we go through life. What will people say at my funeral? Or even better, what will people say about what Christ did through me at my funeral? This is what they said about, about Tabitha. This is what defined her life. A disciple full of good works and acts of charity. Both halves of that equation have to be there. The latter coming from the former. A disciple full of good works 
and charity. We read the same thing in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Both sides, saved by grace for good works. Now, this is not a call for every man, woman, and child to go out, buy a sewing machine and bolts of linen and start making tunics. But it does make us think, what will be said about me? A disciple full of what? Romans 12, 4-8 tells us about the different avenues that we have to live out our calling as Christians, as disciples. For as we, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So we're not all widow carers and tunic makers. Grace that differ. Let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So the question is not necessarily how, how do we care for widows, or that's important, or, or how do we become full of, of charity and good works. It's how have we been called and uniquely gifted to live out our discipleship. You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So King Jesus here, he's transforming his people into his own likeness, for his own glory, the accomplishment of the Great Commission, and the joy of the saints and the disciples. So these miracles performed through Peter by our Lord Jesus were for the powerful spread of the gospel across the plain of Sharon and and out into the ends of the earth. As we'll see next week, it's going to start exploding out into the Gentile regions. These miracles are also here for us, for mere Gentiles halfway around the globe, 2,000 years later. We're having our faith strengthened and renewed by these miracles. As we see yet again that the testimony of the faith once for all delivered to the saints is true. It's verified. The apostles were of God. And we see, see that, that King Jesus is ruling and reigning, that he will one day vanquish every last bit of the curse, and that he's transforming his people into his image in order to live out our discipleship as saints. So I'll conclude with a Spurgeon comment. He said, All our Lord's miracles were intended to be parables. They were intended to instruct us as well as to impress. They are sermons to the eye, just as his spoken discourses were sermons to the ear. So may this be so for us today as he forms his workmanship in us. Amen.